Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 6, and let me first take you back to approximately 1994. I was the chaplain of the Cincinnati Bengals and Reds for a six-year period from 92 to 98, and I walked into the Reds' locker room one Sunday morning, as I did at every home Sunday game, to do both the chapel for the Reds and the visiting team. The visiting team was typically first, and then I would do the Reds uh, in their locker room. And as I walked into the weight room where everybody gathered for chapel, vast majority of the players were there, 23 out of 25, and some people that worked for the Reds club, etc. cetera, I, I started off with this question. What do you think about slavery? A lot of tired heads raised their heads. And their eyes locked in on me. And I went around asking guys, what did you think about slavery? And as I did, you could tell the emotional temperature of the room was rising. This is a white country dude. And he's asking us what we think about slavery. 60% of the room were African American. Every player responded, obviously, with, I hate it, it's sick, it's evil. And then one guy asked the question, and including in one of those guys I pointed out on purpose was Deion Sanders, because I wanted his attention. And I knew if he had paid attention, the rest of the locker room would. One guy asked me, why are you asking that question? And I read to them Romans 6, 17, and 18. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin and you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have now become slaves of righteousness. And then I declared to the locker room, everyone is either a slave to sin or a slave to Christ. There was certainly some noticeable relief in the room even as I unpack that couple of verses for them, one guy who's a strong believer and an African-American on the team, dear friend of mine, afterwards put his arm around me and said, bro, I thought I was going to have to protect you. <laughs> I said, no, nah, no, nah, bro, you ain't got to protect me against no baseball players. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Football locker room? Yeah. I got these dudes, I promise you. Now, obviously, I was being provocative, and I was often provocative when I did pro-chapel services because that's a tough room to teach the Bible to, and you must first get their attention and then teach them the truth. And, and this morning, our text on slaves and masters gets our attention for sure. It's a tough subject. It's especially tough subject without lots of context. In addition, I want us to understand this passage has been twisted for years to make a case against God, to make God in Christ to be a white man's religion, and that is further from, furthest from the truth. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 is the final unit of what it's called the household code of domestic relationships. 
when yielding to and filled with the Spirit of God. We've got wives and husbands. We've got children and parents. Monty did a great job the last two weeks, and this morning we have slaves and masters. And what is often done with this text is the teacher who's teaching it, because we no longer live in a slave context, in a slave world, or in a society with slavery. Instead of teaching the text, he goes immediately for application to an employee and an employer. And I think the reason is, is fear or embarrassed by what the Bible says about this area. So this morning, we are first going to look at the author's intent. What did God mean? Why did Paul write it? The author's intent of exegeting the Bible is crucial, and then we'll go to our application. So let me read for us the text this morning, starting in verse 5. Bond servants or slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or free. Masters do the same thing to them, or same to them, and stop threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him or with God. Let me first unpack, and I want to encourage you. I bought this book a couple of months ago. I have not read it yet, okay? But it's called The Slave Trade, The Story of the Atlantic Slave Trade. What it has been called, I did a lot of research to find the best book, and it says the most comprehensive account of the Atlantic slave trade ever written. So I, I just want to bring that out, show it to you, encourage you to buy it. I think it's a topic that we all need to be familiar with. In light of that, I want to first talk this morning about what was slavery like in the Greco-Roman world, as it says there in your notes. So certainly, slavery to us in 2023 is foreign to us. Uh, our understanding of it, uh, I think, for the vast majority of people, including myself, can have a blinded lens on because the context is only the South, as slavery was here in the South in the U.S. These limited lenses that we sometimes see slavery with it makes it difficult to understand this particular text itself. It is a cultural and historical context for slavery during the days of Jesus and Paul will certainly help us this morning, but also in a bigger picture. So in the Greco-Roman world, slavery was just a part of everyday life and nearly every person's life. It was that normal. So much so that hardly Anyone in that Greco-Roman world would think about it being wrong or illicit or something that you should stop. In that world, it was considered a financial and also a very practical 
not thing, but a necessity. There was one-third, historians have said, of the Greco-Roman world that were in slavery. Sixty million people, the estimate around that number, were slaves in that culture and world. Now, you became a slave during that time in a lot of different ways. You could have been born into slavery. You could have your parents sell you or abandon you. And, and, and another text, back to, if we talk about fathers, in that world, a father had the right to kill their child if their child was doing something out of line. I mean, it was complete power. And so even as we talk about being a dad from the scriptures, it was revolutionary. You could be a cap captive of war. You could have had an inability to pay debts. And some even signed up to be a slave in order to, to make their living conditions better, believe it or not. And in this world, race was not what made anyone a slave. Yet, just to be clear, it was still slavery. And to the degree that it was harsh and cruel, really depended upon your master or the one who owned you. But no doubt there was hard work involved. One historian put it this way. He said, slaves in this society <clears throat> did nearly all the work including the oversight and management of most professions. Many were educated better than their owners. They could own property. They could own other slaves. They were allowed to save money to buy their freedom. And many gained their freedom by their early 30s, he said, especially in urban areas. He goes on to say this. Some were loved and treated like family, but they still had no rights Others were treated cruelly, and if the owner wanted to torture them or crucify or kill his slaves, they certainly could. In this world, slaves were still dehumanized. Here's how Aristotle described a slave. The slave has no deliberate faculty and is a living tool. Now, he uses tool. He's not... You know, we may use that in conversation. A tool is you're a trip or you're crazy. He's saying you're a living tool as in a shovel or rake, etc. So there are certainly many differences between what we know about southern slavery here in the U.S. and in the Greco-Roman slavery. But to leave no doubt this morning as the pastor of this church, a pastor of this church, one of the pastors. I don't want to, like, did Monty quit or something, you know? <laughs> Slavery is demonic and evil. I have a black daughter. She doesn't know this, but I've often grieved thinking about, meditating about, wallowing in my mind and heart what it would be like her as a slave. And the attempts of Christians to defend slavery in the U.S., whether it was in the past or now, is very discouraging at the least. But it does show us, if you ever doubt it, that men and women are sinful, simply, probably you could just read that book on slavery. 
Because it wasn't only here in the South. Do you know how our slaves got here? Different tribes would go capture another tribe in the heartland of Africa and march them seven or 800 miles through the jungle with chains on and sell them at the Ivory Coast. Slavery is not a skin problem. It is a sin problem. Yes, it's important to know what slavery looked like in the day of Paul, but I think it's also important this morning to get a survey, if you would, an overview. What does the Bible say about slavery? I got some verses here. Uh, sorry, I had something in my mouth and I tried to hide it, getting it out, and all of you saw it, so I apologize. <laughs> a little breakfast this morning left over. I was trying to be smooth, and I was like, no, you just got caught. I want to give you a little bit of a summary there. I put some verses for you. I can't teach these passages. We don't have time. So I wanted to uh, allow you to look them up later. But the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, what it did was recognize and regulate slavery as an institution in Israel, and it established laws for slavery. You can look there at Exodus 21, Leviticus 25. It said things like, how do you buy slaves? It told you how to do that. How to free slaves, how to treat slaves. And there was the different treatment between a Hebrew Jewish slave and a pagan slave. To be clear, the Old Testament established laws for slavery, but it did not establish slavery itself. That's a huge difference. It was a part of that world even then. The Old Testament also regulated slavery by saying things like slavery, slaves are to be given a Sabbath rest each week, Exodus 20, uh, even gave foreign slaves a Sabbath rest, Exodus 21 commands that there be no man stealing, and if sinful people would have simply obeyed that command, there probably wouldn't be slavery. Laws about the release of slaves after seven years, etc., in the year of Jubilee. It also addressed what do you do with a prisoner of war? How do you deal with that? Or a runaway slave? So the Old Testament never says slavery is a good thing, but it does recognize it and then regulates it and how it should operate if it does exist. That was revolutionary in the world at that time. It, for an example, it would be divorce. Divorce was recognized and regulated in the Old Testament law, but no one would say it's a good thing. In the New Testament, it assumes that slavery is a part of the society at large around the world, and it is to regulate it as a domestic institution. It's why Paul included it into the household code, along with husbands and wives and parents and children. And in doing so, the New Testament, in some ways, what it does, it brings Christian truth and distinctives into this world of slavery. And we'll see that this morning. It was a it was simply a reality in that culture, not only then, but for centuries to come. So New Testament, in some ways, Christianizes slavery for both the slave and the masters. And as we'll see today, it affirmed 
the equality of both the slave and the master, which was absolutely revolutionary, doesn't even fit. It was mind-blowing. Galatians 3 puts it this way. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ. Colossians 3. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, very similar to our text, parallel text in Colossians, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, whatever you do, work hardly as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality. Also, if you think about the book of Philemon, it's often a forgotten book. But Philemon was a leader in the church, and he was also a slave owner. And one of his slaves was a guy by the name of who? Onesimus, who ran away, and he found Paul, or they got together. I think Paul was in prison. Paul led Onesimus to Christ, but Paul had also led Philemon to Christ. And here's what Paul says about Onesimus to Philemon. He says, Onesimus is now a brother in Christ. Onesimus is loved and is useful to the gospel. So, slavery was a sad reality in a sinful world. Then and now. And God in his word brought ethical standards to slavery, just as it did to divorce in that world then. Women, the poor, the sanctity of marriage, personhood. And in doing so, what often followed was a change of how these areas were practiced in the culture. God's word, and some one writer said, curbed the evil and brought his mercy to bear on sinful, evil, fallen human practices. So that's a lot of context, is it not? And usually a lot more than I or Monty usually give, but I felt like it was needed because the text is pretty straightforward. It's not like we're having to exegete difficult terms and issues, but it is very difficult to apply what we're going to see this morning. So I put in your notes, dear Christian slaves, obey your masters. Why would I say that? Because this is a letter written to Christian slaves and Christian masters who are in the church at Ephesus, typically worshiping together on a Sunday morning. (laughs) Morning, master. Morning, slave. That's the context. So Paul writes, dear Christian slaves, obey your masters. I want you to notice that bond servants are to be submissive to their masters, just as wives are to be submissive to their husbands. We taught that. Children are to be submissive to their parents, and all Christians are to be submissive, as it tells us earlier in the text of of Ephesians, to one another. How? 
It says, in the fear of Christ for all of those. These Christian slaves are full members of the church, and Paul addresses them as people who should be yielding to the Spirit of God, and culturally, this is crazy to even address them at all. They were invisible. They didn't matter. That was their status, zero. Paul is telling the slave, you now have a higher allegiance than the person who owns you. You, or because now you are a slave to Christ. God owns you. 1 Corinthians 6 says, we, if you're a Christ follower, you are not your own. One of Monty's favorite saying is yanyo. You are not your own. If you want to break into something at fellowship, type in yanyo. You know, we, we got it. So, Or you got it. Then we'll put you in jail. And you can be, have a ministry, jail ministry, right? <laughs> Paul's telling them, whatever you do, you are serving him even as a slave. Paul often called himself a slave of Christ. And I want you to remember that as he wrote this letter of Ephesus and Colossians, he was not a free man himself. He was suffering unjustly as a prisoner. And Christ himself took the form of a slave. Philippians 2. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a what? Servant. There's the word. Now you notice these words fear and trembling are together. When you put them together, it intensifies both words, but because... If I'm speaking for myself and, and, and assuming that I may be speaking for lots of you, we have Alex Haley's version of roots in our minds when we read this. We need to know that fear and trembling here doesn't mean scared out of your mind because you're going to get killed. Paul said that's not how you obey your masters. This phrase means big picture your life before God. Here's how Philippians 2 puts it. Work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. To the slave, it says, obey your masters out of a sense of fear and reverence before God. In verses 5, 6, and 7, he, he says, do it with a sincere heart and not by the way of eye service. Paul is saying, don't play. If you're a slave, don't play to a human audience. Don't be lazy and lie. Don't just work when you're being watched. Quit kissing up. And you can put whatever phrase you want. Let the results of the gospel, that's what he's challenging the Christian slave with. Let the results of the gospel affect how you work, affect your attitude. And if you do this, you are doing the will of God. Now, that's the command Dear Christians, obey your masters. Why? <clears throat> Verse 8 tells us, the Lord will reward you. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but I think it's very common for many of us, you know, just in, in humanity for our deeds, our good deeds to be unnoticed. I mean, certainly as a husband and wife in that household code, you ever felt like that as a husband? Well, I did clean the dishes, and I did do this, but the wife doesn't notice, and 
You, she does something you don't notice. I, I, I think that's, that's just normal. So Paul says here, God notices. The Lord knows. The Lord notices and promises to repay and reward you. We also know this from Romans 14. Tells us that all will stand before the judgment of God to give an account. Not to our earthly master, but to the master of the universe. So we ask the question, a legitimate question, what if our master on earth is abusive? Then we do what we please. Then we can kill him. Then we can punish him. Then we can rebel, right? Makes sense? In our flesh, in my flesh, <laughs> it makes total sense. But yielding to the Spirit of God, here's what Peter writes if your master is abusive. Servants, slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. <clears throat> For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows. Did you hear that? When mindful of God, it takes an eternal mindset. One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He who committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to one who judges justly. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. If you're like me, and some of you are and some of you aren't, and those who aren't are praising God, <laughs> over half of my problems in the Christian life in terms of my own maturity has been my responses to pain and suffering and things I didn't like. Peter addresses that here. Our responses are to be with the Lord Jesus Christ in eternity in mind. The godly, holy life of a slave were to be a quiet protest and witness to a higher calling from the master. So, Paul lays it out. It's pretty clear. Dear Christian slave, obey your masters. Why? He will reward you. And then Paul Addresses the masters, the owners in verse 9. Dear Christian masters, stop your threatening. Again, what Paul says here is revolutionary. It's countercultural because he is saying, Masters, you need to have the same heart and attitude as I just, what I just said to the slaves concerning the slaves' conduct. These should also be your conduct, fear and trembling as unto the Lord, great integrity, respect, 
serving the Lord as you serve the slaves. You, master, are also a slave of Christ. Act like it to your slaves. Now, I just want you to know, I did quite a bit of research trying to find this out, and it was confirmed in my limited time that I had this week that until this, these verses were written, no one in the world ever said anything like this to slave owners. No one, not Aristotle, who seemingly commented on everything. He had more Twitter followers if he lived today. He had an opinion about everything. Not the philosophers of the day. No one had ever said something like this to the masters. The command, stop your threats to the slaves. No more beatings. No more sexual harassment. No more selling members of the family to people in a far off land. Masters, throw away the pry bar of leverage it gives you because your master is both their Lord and your Lord. And there is no partiality with God. Here's how C.S. Lewis puts it. Every earthly status and privilege evaporates before Christ. And if I just step back and I read that quote, Every earthly privilege evaporates or status evaporates before Christ. That in itself would give us room for application for years to come. Because whether it's overtly or covertly or conscious or unconscious, you and I as humans are hardwired to get our worth and value from what we do and what people think of us and how we're seen in the culture. Paul is obliviating all of that with this comment to the masters. Masters, you have a master, is what Paul's saying. And what you are in this life makes no difference before our holy God on judgment day. The justice of God at judgment brings ultimate equality among men. Billy Graham preaching at a president's funeral, as he often did back in the day, put it this way. At the cross, whether a president or a pauper, they're all equal. Kyle Snodgrass, a great theologian, said this. This ethic right here, this biblical ethic moves beyond the golden rule that is beyond treating others as we want to be treated, and it instructs us to treat others as we would treat the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, if this isn't relevant for you and I, for today, I don't know what is. There's nothing more relevant in some ways than this command to masters. It is this truth for both the Christian slave and the Christian master that put in motion a process that would eventually destroy slavery. The painful fact is it took way too long, and the church was complicit in that mess, not completely. Obviously, Christians were a large part of destroying slavery here in America, but you get what I'm trying to say. So in light of that, there's the Greco-Roman world, Here's what the Bible says about slavery. 
Paul's exhortation and commands, and as well as the why to both the Christian slave and the Christian master. Now, in a world that doesn't have slavery here, where we live day in and day out, it's still very functional throughout the world. How in the world do we apply this? Well, it is through employer and employee relations. This is your so what. It's an extended so what, but I think it will be helpful for us. As we move to this application, we must sink our teeth into this truth. Our jobs and status in our culture do not determine who we are. We are to live in, to, and for Christ in all we do. Our value and identity do not come from our life circumstances. Y'all thought I was having a stroke, didn't you? Am I good? Did I do something? Okay. Our value and identity do not come from our life circumstances, but from Christ himself, which makes even the most mundane parts of our lives a service to God. This kind of theology shows us what is to motivate us, who we are to seek to please, and how we are to use power and everything we do involves a direct encounter with Jesus Christ. No act is mundane and no person is unimportant. Those are solid things that must get inside of us as we grow in Christ. No relation is just a relation. It is a context for relating Christ. No job is merely work. Work was not cursed. Work is good. Work is a context for serving Christ. There is no sacred and secular split. You can't come to church on Sunday and be a bear to work for or, or a bear worker <laughs> during the week. The scriptures and God do not give you that option. Everything in life is holy, even how we do our work. You want to be a missionary? Raise your hand if you ever thought about being a missionary. Then go work hard at your work. What we do matters, and how we do it matters. So, for employees, here are three pertinent applications. One, respect authority structure. Regardless if the boss is a great one or incompetent, you can't slander him, you can't gossip about him, you can't backbite him or undermine him. God has you here for such a time as this. God did not fall asleep and give you a bad job and a bad boss. Do your work because that work there is kingdom work. Secondly, Work unto an audience of one. If anything plagues the people of God throughout the history of the people of God, it is people pleasing. We want folks to like us. There's a great book I read years ago, but the title is phenomenal. The title is better than the book. The book was really good, and here it is. Ready? It's so good I can't remember Oh, uh, when, when, 
when people are big and God is small. Look at that. Smart, smart as a whip. This, it's a horizontal view of life versus a vertical view of life. It's a worldly view of life versus an eternal view. It's getting your worth from other humans versus being in Christ. Three times in these five verses, Paul says something to the Christian slave to work under the watchful eye of the living God who notices unto him as if he were your boss. Learning to work hard is unto the Lord is the will of God for your life. And if you don't, it's sin. Third, sincerity and integrity. Dabo Sweeney would say, bloom where you're planted and see what the Lord does. For if you're a boss, if you're an employer, if you're one who hires folks and have the power to give them their job, here's four quick points. One is Christ is the ultimate boss, not you. It's a good thing to remind yourself every day as you walk into the office or wherever. Our sinful nature makes us want to be in charge. Then we can't handle it and we abuse our power. Churches are full of pastors who've done it and your occupation is full of folks who've done it. Nod your head if you work with somebody like that. Okay, we got a lot of head nodding. It takes a spiritually mature person not to do this. Secondly, respect employees. Your employees are made in the image of God. And as a Christ-following boss, your employees are those whom God has put under you to care for, to love on, to influence, to challenge and equip in their jobs, in their employment, to love and hopefully some come to Christ because you've lived as a Christ-following boss or employer. They see it. They say, he's different. They feel it. They go home to their wives and say, or their husbands and say, I never work for anybody like this. Well, he's different. What's up with him? And when you do mess up as a boss, because you will, your humble, honest response to them is so different than every other boss they've ever had. Thirdly, integrity in business, truth and honesty at all times. You tell the truth, and they know that. They can trust you. And then lastly, man, I love this one. As a, as a person who is in charge of others in their work, you can bless your workers. Intentional ways to go beyond the job description. You help meet their needs. You learn about their stories and their families. You invite them to lunch. You invite them to your home because you're a missionary with a mission, and they're your mission. A great challenge to blow their minds. Write them notes, Christmas gifts. If you're a boss, if you're one who hires folks and are in charge of them at work, make it bigger than work and have a great time doing it trusting God that he's going to use that kind of boss in their life so you got a lot of application take a minute and ask the question so what
pray. Father in heaven, you are the perfect master. You have loved us well. You have sacrificially cared for us. You give us all that we need to do what you've called us to do. So we we say thanks. And uh, we ask that you would use us in our culture to reflect uh, the love of our master. We're grateful for that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.